This is where we're helped, I think, by African-American literature, because at its core, it is asking the sort of question, how do you live in a society that has a history in which uh, in which things are built around you not being able to be free? And by thinking through those things, we realize the, the emphasis on the body, the emphasis on embodiment, the emphasis on flourishing and freedom, it actually links back in to what God has designed for human beings to um to to really uh, operate within. Welcome to the Habit Podcast, conversations with writers about writing. I'm Jonathan Rogers, your host. Claude Acho is a pastor in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the author of Reading Black Books, How African-American Literature Can Make Our Faith More Whole and Just. As Josh Larson has said, this work of Christian literary criticism is written with the passion of a book lover and the urgency of a preacher. In this episode, Claude and I visit some of the great works of 20th century black literature. We talk about a kind of theological reading that goes well beyond empathy. We also discuss what it means to acknowledge the image of God in another person, among other things. Paul Acho, I'm so happy to have you on the Habit Podcast today. Thank you for being here. Jonathan, it's a pleasure. Thanks for the invitation. So your book is Reading Black Books, and you make a big claim in the subtitle that American African American literature can make our faith more whole and just. So I'd like to I'd like to start there, give you a chance to I mean that that really summarizes your thesis for this book that uh that African American literature can make our faith more whole and just. How so? How how does how does that work? So uh- you know, part of what I'm doing with the subtitle and what I'm doing with the book as a whole is really drawing on African-American tradition, both Christian and otherwise, which looks at um, the lived experience of African-Americans and, and says that there is uh, trial, uh, suffering and challenge that has come our way through unrighteousness. And a lot of times that unrighteousness is tied to uh, what Frederick Douglass uh, calls sort of the... Um, the opposite of Christianity proper, um, this sort of perversion of the Christian faith. So uh, by kind of inverse, working back from Douglas's observation, there is a true and peaceable and proper Christianity uh, that is possible. And I think one of the ways we get to that is actually by looking at African-American experience uh, through our literature, seeing the ways that people grapple with suffering, seeing the ways that people uh, hold on to hope in the face of extreme adversity, adversity not just created by their own um, or choices, but through systemic powers uh, and through people um, visibly and viciously against them. Uh, when we look at African-American literature in these sort of ways, we uh, we see a corrective um, to many different sort of abuses, but we also see humans grappling with the essential questions of life, um, life under suffering, life under trial. Uh, and in the midst of those things, we find writers and characters who are grappling with questions of uh, theodicy. Where is God in suffering? Uh, how do you keep going when the world is, is truly and literally against you? These sort of things, if we enter into the story and the literature, uh, it, it, because it's dealing with human experience, if we read it in a certain way, it will draw us into the truths of the kingdom and will be refined through that process. Mm. Now, some of the some of the writers you talk about in this book are Christian people, and some aren't. Um, you you say that reading theologically doesn't require that the authors you engage be Christian or or have a theological agenda one way or another. Um, 
And I think also it's it's fair to say that reading theologically, it doesn't mean that you are necessarily there to criticize a a writer who is not Christian or that's that's not your main job as a reader. Right. To sort of, you know, tell what's wrong with this worldview because this person's not a Christian or whatever. Can how do you talk to me about how you engage theologically with books that don't share your theological commitments? So Richard Wright's work, I think, is a really great example of this. Uh, so he, I cover two of his books in uh, in my book. So he's he he takes the crown in terms of getting two titles in in one book, <laughs> Native Son, and then The Man Who Lived Underground, and would certainly commend both of those to to, to listeners. It's fascinating and penetrating and um, important works. But he's a great example. So in the story of of Native Son, he he is um, exploring the sort of uh, doomed fate of a young uh, young black teen in Chicago. Uh, in the 40s by the name of Bigger Thomas. And in that novel, Wright is really interested in sort of systems and um, in sort of the way society has positioned itself in uh, strong opposition to any sort of life of hope or flourishing for uh, for Black people. And, he, and he, he really highlights that through Bigger's experience. And so when you read that story, though Wright is not a Christian, he's he's interested in these sort of questions of um, agency, suffering, possibility. Um, yeah. Is there hope or is there not hope? Right. Because he's engaging with human story. It can be read theologically, which means we can look at human experience and human story the way we would listen to our neighbor when they tell us their story. Yeah. We would listen for these clues that say, okay, what is what is there in this person's experience that is teaching me something about how human beings relate to God, need God, ask questions of God, shake their fists towards the heavens, right? Anytime we hear story, uh, we can listen for those sort of cues and it can help us to think better uh, as as disciples and as Christians. So that's how I think you can read theologically uh, when we come to literature, even if the author is not necessarily uh, engaging in a Christian project, they're engaging in a human project, which mm -hmm. therefore means it has relevance to to the Christian story. Yeah. That's great. Um, you you said something. This is I think that's just an introduction that that really surprised me, and um, and it's it's not self evident. Let's say so. I'd love to hear you uh, explain what you mean when when you say theological reading demands that we do more than empathize. And you go farther than that. You you go ahead. You go so far as to say that a properly theological reading demotes empathy from 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 the sort of one of the main points to to a happy product of reading. And I would have thought, you know, I'm a white person. My a lot of my listeners are white people, and I would have thought one of the big reasons to read African American literature would be to empathize. And you're saying you're looking for for or something to happen that's more than empathy here. So I'd love to hear you explain what you mean that that you want to demote empathy. Yeah, I'm 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 glad you picked up on this. Um 
So I think empathy is really, is obviously really important, and it is a, a really key product of of, of art, uh, particularly literature. Right when we read, we're doing, you know, we're we're being quiet and we're we're engaging and submitting to the words of another, which is in the world that they've constructed, which really does not happen in any other sort of context. You know, where where we just sit and and submit to these sort of words. Um, so I, I don't I, I don't mean to undercut the importance or power of empathy, but I do want to sort of order it properly and kind of if we're thinking of sort of steps of a ladder. I really do like what uh, Martha Nussbaum, the literary scholar, says about em- uh, about literature, that it does create these links of possibility and these sort of uh, bonds of empathy. I think that is really important. I think what a theological reading can do, at least in my view and what I'm trying to do in my um, in my book with this project, is, is, saying, is saying that there's a way to read for a higher goal that will still give us empathy, but then will push us further and deeper. So I don't want to um, discard it, but I do think a reordering is necessary. Empathy, I think, sort of focuses on how we can relate to the person we're reading. A theological reading uh, really um, kind of terminates and ends with questions of God. Um, so that's really what I'm after, um, is not just sort of, oh, how can I relate to Bigger Thomas? But I want to know, what does Jesus say? about Baker Thomas? What does Jesus say about this sort of experience? What does this teach me about God and his world in which I fit, but in which I'm not sort of final or ultimate? That I think is really the big difference. So, um, I give the example in the introduction of Bigger Thomas, where you know empathy would be sort of like feeling bad, you know, feeling bad for him, wondering how how should I live differently uh, to not participate in systems of injustice? Um, how can I how can I relate to this sort of character and understand what they're going through? Have my imagination and heart expanded through entering their experience? All all obviously really important things, but we need to move further into sort of consideration of what word does Jesus speak to? To, to someone like Baker Thomas, right? Mm-hmm. To someone who who has lived this sort of existence. And what then um, do I need to uh, think about when it comes to God and his relation to this world in light of this story? So it sort of moves past just how can my heart be expanded to actual questions relating to, to God. Mm. You shoot for the theological and you get the empathy thrown in. Exactly. Yeah, that that would have been the quick way to say it. That's right. <laughs> um, you spoke about expanding our our hearts, our imagination again, but you're still talking about that as a byproduct rather than the than the main point. Is that that's yeah, so, yeah, I think I think so. I mean I think I think along uh I think you know, to me, I think when we read when we read literature in the in the way that I'm proposing, I think good things should happen to us. I, but I think it should also lead us to contemplate um, to contemplate God and the story of redemption, the story of salvation, which obviously we're inside of, you know, and we're attached to, and we're a part of, and we're um, we're benefactors uh, of. But but it's it's not just us. So I, I see those things really threaded together, you know. So for example, um, and maybe it's some of it's the preacher inside of me, uh, as, uh, along with the sort of literary minded um, person inside of me. Some of these chapters that I've written, they have the sort of sermonic close or pace to where I've tried to unpack how we ought to be different 
because of these stories. But then I also try to get to to try to get to okay, a theocentric, Christocentric kind of conclusion as well, right? So it's not just enough for us to think differently about systems and structures because we read Richard Wright theologically. Mm-hmm. We also need to think about how God considers systems and structures uh, in light of reading Richard Wright mm-hmm. theologically and what that means when we think about redemption and salvation and sin and grace and all these sort of things. So I I think that's sort of maybe um, an inclination that I have, a conviction that I have, that it needs to be both of those things sort of in lockstep. And um, uh, otherwise, otherwise I think we, you know, we will sort of... um, will be overwhelmed you know by the by the changes that we need to make in and of ourselves and 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 we'll we'll find that we'll run out of stamina to to really live in a whole and just way we we need we we need to keep god central to those efforts yeah that's good thank you for that um also it seems to me you're you're talking about if we're you've been framing empathy in terms of a sort of individual approach to like my heart expanding my me as the reader and the, the the theological reading is inviting us into something bigger than the individual in the same i mean you know when you talk about sin your, your chapter on sin you you get to this idea you hit it pretty hard the idea that sin is not just a matter of individual you know making good choices you're individual but rather you know this and and Black fiction is seems to be stronger on the idea of systemic sin as a mm-hmm. systemic mm-hmm. matter um, and a communal matter. You know, communal might not be the word I'm looking for, but a something bigger than the individual. Um, it pushes against the the indi- individualistic view of sin and salvation that um, that prevails in so much of of American Christianity, white American Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's right, and I think that's a that's a good example of sort of how reading in the way that I'm proposing does expand our understanding, right? Does expand us to to now think about okay, if um, if sin operates in these ways, are there places in my life where I'm actually sort of caught in this hive mind, this sort of web mm-hmm. of sin? in ways that are really quiet, in ways that are actually pretty respectable and sort of just totally normal. And none of us bats an eye at, you know, um, with this understanding, we would all have to say, absolutely, that's the case, you know, and there's no, and with this sort of understanding it, there's no sort of, um, there's no sort of groveling that has to come with that. There's now freedom yeah. to recognize if that's the case, then I need to be aware. How can I become aware? How can I make these sort of changes? One great example of this, all these insights for me in terms of their, they have a scriptural basis, but their literary basis comes from, again, Native Son by Richard Wright, where Bigger is being um, helped by the character Mary Dalton and her boyfriend who have very sort of radical politics and sympathy toward African-Americans to see them as equals. But even in their sort of goodwill, they don't understand the system that they're in. So their goodwill ends up putting uh, bigger in positions and places that he has just, he, he, the world, he has no preparation for how to respond. And it ends up sort of cascading a tragedy that in my reading is both related to systems and then also the choices that happen within them. So, so that, you know, serves as a small example of kind of, if we read the story kind of with ears attuned to some of the theological themes, then I think we're led into a way in which our hearts and, and empathy is expanded, but, but our, our, our theological thinking becomes 
becomes a little bit sharper in the process as well. Yeah, yeah that's good. Why do you think people are resistant to the idea of systemic sin? I mean, as you said, there's something, there's something as nice isn't the <laughs> is the wrong word, but but the, the idea that that if, as I acknowledge that I'm sort of in this web of of systemic sin, dealing with it is not a matter of of groveling and being sufficiently feeling sufficiently bad about it. Whereas in terms of individual sin, there is a measure of feeling bad. Why, why are we? Why are, are so many of us so resistant to the idea of sin as a as system? I think that's an important question. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, maybe the most generous, I, I like with these sort of questions, I like to try to think about what's the most generous reading of a situation. Okay. I think maybe the most generous reading of, of why people are afraid of systemic sin is that people out of a desire to be faithful to the whole truth of, of the faith don't want to see individual um sin and individuals need for grace to be sort of undercut or overthrown mm -hmm. right so so if i was going to try to think in the most charitable way i think i think that does exist in some places um but i think you know we also have to be realistic too i, I think there's sort of uh there's a lot of fear that comes from embracing uh, a view of systemic sin because if um if our systems are broken, then we're going to have to reimagine a lot of things mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. that's going to change a lot of things and um, changes is frightening for, for, mm -hmm. for most. Right. So, so I think there's sort of a, a fear in, in some of that resistance. Um, uh, I also think there's uh, people don't, maybe people have not seen good examples of how these truths go together and they're complementary and interconnected. You're not displacing one for the other, right? You're, not, um, you're saying you're not displacing individual responsibility for sin for systemic. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, so I, I think, I think people, um, uh, they think in extremes with with new ideas or with ideas maybe that are new to them, mm -hmm. uh, and so they go in that direction. But I think another reason people are, uh, my my anecdotal read is that folks who have not seen or experienced sort of sin at a group level, at a structural level, um, they they just they they. they they don't see how these things can be held together. And I think that's why it's a lot of ethnic minority traditions, at least in the American context, that are able to recognize both the individual reality of sin and a social systemic nature. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's our lived experience that opens us up or closes us apart from, from recognizing, I think, the two angles of sin that scripture speaks of. Yeah. Okay. Um, I would love to talk about the image of God because you, you talk about an idea in your book that I that I wasn't familiar with, and I don't think it originated with you. But no. the distinction between the structural element of the image of God and the functional element of the image of God, um, and I don't fully understand that distinction. I'm going to get your help here, but I, I do think that from what I understand, I am guilty of of overemphasizing the structural side of things. Which does sort of um, you you argue, and I think you're you're borrowing from uh, Hokuma. He, how, how do you pronounce his last name? I think that that's how I've said Hokuma? it. Yeah, yeah Anthony yeah. Hokuma. That's how I've said it. So maybe we're both wrong. <laughs> yeah, right. But but we end up um, emphasizing the the human capacity in disembodied ways when we pay too much attention to the structural rather than the functional at the expense of the functional element of the image of God. 
Now, I just said all yeah. that, but what we really need is for you to explain the difference between yeah, yeah. structural and functional yeah. elements. Abs yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I think Hokama is helpful here. That's what I'm citing and kind of working from. So the, this idea of the uh, the image of God that we're all made in God's image meant to reflect him. And um, Hokama is helpful here because he talks about um, the image of God is kind of um, has two sort of components, this, this, the structural or the structure, which is kind of like our, our, our gifts, our capacity. So our okay. rationality, our creativity, um, our, uh, relationality with others. Mm -hmm. And then there's also the functional piece, right? What we're meant to do as image bearers, right? So these are our, um, the use of the God given gifts in our structure, right? That we're made, we're given a creation, um, a cultural mandate to cultivate, okay. uh, to cultivate creation, to image God. God, to worship God, all that sort of stuff. So it's really this kind of like gift um, capacity and then sort of like job or mission, right? That's another right. way you can think of structure and function, which which really doesn't originate with him. It goes back to church fathers who, who said we're made in the image of God, but we need to grow in the likeness, right? We need to cultivate the virtue so that we can fulfill the function. Um, right. I, I think what's important here. All, all of that said, it, it can be simplified by recognizing that in in a lot of American church circles, we think about the image of God as the capacity to be rational, to think, to create, to mm -hmm. know who God is. We think of that sort of capacity and that structure in those terms. Those are very good and very important, but we don't think about what it means to image, to be an image bearer of God when others are actually doing bodily harm to your existence. We, we, we don't take all of those pieces of the doctrine, structure and function, and make explicit connection that they're linked together and they're embodied in human flesh. We, we, we don't deal with the sort of visceral reality that what it means to image God is to actually live in the physicality that we've been given. Um, and because we don't think about that that often, we don't have a question or we don't have an answer rather to the question, what does it mean to image God when other image bearers are trying to stop you from imaging God, right? Mm -hmm. They're actually trying to hold you back from living the life, worship, cultivation, creativity, flourishing that God has made human persons to live. This question is is very much taken up by African-American literature because it's a question of freedom, right? You know, mm -hmm. it, it's not even a question that necessarily Christian writers, uh, black Christian writers um, are, are required to ask. It's anyone who is a, uh, a black person writing or thinking in American context is asking this sort of question. So this is where we're helped, I think, by African-American literature, because at its core, it is asking the sort of question, how do you live in a society that has a history in which uh, in which things are built around you not being able to be free. Mm -hmm. And by thinking through those things, we realize the, the emphasis on the body, the emphasis on embodiment, the emphasis on flourishing and freedom, it actually links back in to what God has designed for human beings to, um, to, to really uh, operate within. Mm. So uh, the structural, we everybody agrees that everybody of, of any race, any ethnicity bears the image of God. Like there's no debate about that. Everybody agrees. We do. We do now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. We do now. Right. 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 Um, but then, so, but that's not enough. Y your point is that's not enough for for us to all agree that we all have the capacity 
the question is what what are do we have the opportunities to to live out the image of God? That's, that's the difference. Is that another way of summarizing the difference between? Yes. And so I, I don't yes. necessarily need to feel uh, congratulate myself for acknowledging that people of all uh, races and ethnicities and nationalities and creeds bear the image of God. I also need to ask in what ways am I contributing to anything that's preventing them from fully expressing that image? Exactly. Exactly. Yep. And and, and all this has linked into uh, Ralph Ellison's novel, Invisible Man. And it's a really important novel because in the novel, you find uh, Invisible, the main character is not given a name. He's sort of a stand-in for the everyday African-American. Uh, novel came out in uh, 1952, one of the best 20th century novels that we have. And in this novel, Invisible, the protagonist sort of moves from place to place trying to find a way to live a life of dignity, what we would call in, in Christian terms, right? He, he wants to image God, right? He wants to make a contribution to the world. He wants to know that he's valued, right? Which is also part of knowing that we're made by God, that we're, we have value just in our being, uh, irrespective of the good that we've done or the bad that we've done. We have value. He's looking for this and he doesn't know how to get it. So he turns to education that turns to be a dead end. He turns to uh, to work and activism that turns to be a dead end. He turns it to uh, uh, movement in, in deep and radical politics. And he thinks he's made it and he finds out, no, he's actually viewed as a pawn even within that context. And because of all of these things, he ends up in the underground looking at society from the outside in and sort of at a distance from, uh, from all other people. And we, you sort of realize if you look at that theologically, what he was looking for was a place to have an embodied recognition of his dignity as an image bearer of God. And at every turn, he finds rather that he is he is treated as an embodied sort of tool to be used for various ends and means while, you know, maybe feeling good about himself along the way. He's, he's never actually recognized as f- for what he truly is in, in the category of the Christian story, right? One who reflects God himself. So, when we follow Invisible's journey, we realize that, uh, you know, when he's sort of being used in political activism, they recognize him for his gifts of uh, of oratory and rationality, but they don't recognize him as a true embodied human being, mm-hmm. right? And and that and that's the place, right? That that's the rub because within that movement. That's called the brotherhood. All people are recognized as being equal. All people are, are are seen of being of worth, but it actually doesn't translate to the real lived reality that he experiences. And I think that's where Ellison's novel can really push us to say, okay, we affirm finally, right? We affirm the true doctrine uh, about uh, people's dignity, but are we working to see this happen in an embodied and lived way that that becomes the real, the real challenge and opportunity before us? Yeah. Good. All right. Before we run out of time, we've got to talk about uh, Margaret Walker and her poem uh, for my people, which you, you know, you, you build up to that. It, that's, well, that's that's your last the last chapter. You spend a lot of time on that poem. And it's uh, it's such an incredible poem. And uh, I was hoping you'd read some of it. Um, and absolutely. Uh, and then we can kind of talk about. Yeah, let's talk about it after you. So this is the the poem's actually ten stanzas. You're not going to read ten stanzas. You can you can tell me what you're going to do. <laughs> Absolutely, and I encourage folks for uh, for folks to to go and to read this. There, if you if you search on YouTube, there are many different writers that have read this poem. This poem means a great deal to many, not just in uh, the black community, but uh, but 
but of all all different back backgrounds. So I encourage folks, you you really uh, you really do need to uh, enjoy this poem in its it entirety. Is. I'll read a couple yeah. of the first stanzas, and then I'll read the last two. Okay, thanks. For my people, by Margaret Walker. For my people everywhere, singing their slave songs repeatedly, their dirges and their ditties and their blues and jubilees, praying their prayers nightly to an unknown God, bending their knees humbly to an unseen power. For my people lending their strength to the years, to the gone years and the now years and the maybe years, washing, ironing, cooking, scrubbing, sewing, mending, hoeing, plowing, digging, planting, pruning, patching, dragging along, never gaining, never reaping, never knowing, and never understanding. For my playmates in the clay and dust and sand of Alabama backyards, playing, baptizing, and preaching, and doctor, and jail, and soldier, and school, and mama, and cooking, and playhouse, and concert, and store, and hair, and Miss Chumby, and company. And now I'm going to skip down to the last two stanzas of For My People. For my people blundering and groping and floundering in the dark of churches and schools and clubs and societies, associations and councils and committees and conventions, distressed and disturbed and deceived and devoured by money-hungry, glory-craving leeches, preyed on by facile forces of state and fad and novelty, by false prophet and holy believer. For my people standing, trying to fashion a better way from confusion, from hypocrisy and misunderstanding, trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces, all the Adams and Eves and their countless generations. Let a new earth arise. Let another world be born. Let a bloody peace be written in the sky. Let a second generation full of courage issue forth. Let a people loving freedom come to growth. Let a beauty full of healing and a strength of final clenching be the pulsing in our spirits and our blood. Let the martial songs be written let the dirges disappear. Let a race of men now rise and take control. Wow. I love that last, that, that vision of a, of a new heavens and a new earth, or at least a new earth there at the end, um, this, this vision of hope. Um, I, and I know you do too. I mean, you, you, you write very yes. beautifully about it. Yes. So, go ahead. Yeah, I'm glad to speak on that a little bit. I, I, I think um, one of the things I think is important about this poem, as I mentioned, encouraging folks to read the whole thing, consider it sort of, the way I read it is it's sort of telling a whole story. And so you can sort of see this movement of history, this sort of panoramic view of African-American experience, highs and lows, triumphs and trials, all these sort of things. And then we get this movement in the in this last stanza, right, from description of for my people, for my people, for my people, to this petition, this call down, right, let a new earth rise let another world be born. This almost comes out of nowhere, right? And I think that does embody this this theme of hope that that I find so compelling in this poem. Coming out of nowhere, you say, that that makes me think about the way Fleming Rutledge talks about um, the uh, sort of apocalyptic vision that that redemption is not the you know, it, 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 in some sense does come out of nowhere. It, it's, it's not the logical conclusion of what has been happening, but rather it, it comes from outside. 
Uh, I, 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 yes, I, I love that observation. And I think there is a way to really read this poem in that sort of sense because of the, the language is very apocalyptic, a bloody peace written in the sky. It's also paradoxical, right? Bloody peace, right? Let a, let a, let the martial songs be written, right? And we're calling this new, this new kind of world, right? Okay. So how is this new world going to be brought in by, wo- by war songs, right? I think that fits perfectly into a sort of apocalyptic understanding of salvation that God is making this rescue that comes at the darkest hour outside of us um but but still comes to us nonetheless yeah you make the point that that a you know hope you know you said black hope is rooted in the faith that the god of the end time is also the god of the present time and that that seems relevant to to what we're talking about here yeah, I think that timepiece is really important. I think that sort of uh, realizing that hope really is eschatological. And, and uh, through through some of this chapter, I'm drawing on J.D. Otis Roberts, who has some really great insights about this. And I think it's really important um, in sort of part of the Black Christian traditions or tradition is really this idea that the God who owns the end time, who will judge all and mm-hmm. um, and will establish perfect righteousness, he's also the God of right now. Uh, even though we can't, even though things are, are chaotic and 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 painful and difficult, we, if we can trust that he's going to judge in the end, we can trust that he'll carry us through in the present. And I think it's that thread that moves from the end time to this time. Uh, it's that thread on which um, hope stands. Right, that hope is strengthened. The the our ability to to trust um, in the God of the end time. Uh, leads us to endure in the present time right and it's not that we we sort of trust uh, out of nothing we 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 have these sort of anchors of trust right through through the work of jesus and um and and his cross his resurrection his word all these sort of things that strengthen that bond of end time hope that bleeds into present time reality yeah who was it you in in the epilogue or the 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 epigraph to that chapter you quote somebody now i can't remember who said um, I'm neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus uh, rose again from the dead. Uh, and I, I, did yes. I get that right? I don't know if I said that right. You did. You yeah. did. Yeah. That that is a that that that's floated around. Uh, that's credited to Leslie Newbegin when I did all, uh-huh. all my work on that. Um, and and I think I think that really does capture um, capture the difference. You know what we're talking about. When we're talking about hope related to the Christian story. It's not it's not what I call a, a thin hope. That's just sort of like well, I, I just I sort of hope everything will work out right. And it's also not this sort of other version of thin hope that says, hey, everything's just going to be great. You know, um, it'll all be easy. It, it, it's it's a different category of hope, right? It is a sort of apocalyptic hope that God God reigns, God rules, God has invaded, God has come near, and um, and God will, will arrive again. And on the basis of that, we have hope in the midst of circumstances in which hope under under sort of normal categories really should should not exist. Um, mm-hmm. That that I think is when we're getting to the real basis of Christian hope. Otherwise, whatever we're hoping in is the thing that we're trusting in. So in light of 2020, there's a lot of, you know, I think of Ta-Nehisi Coates, a writer I really enjoy, who began to have hope in seeing sort of a racial uh, consciousness coming to uh, to arise in, in our national conversation, um, and which really reveals that his hope was in the sort of uh, could, could white brothers and sisters get it together and now that he sees them getting getting it together well now i can have hope right (laughs) so everything was really riding on them right and and i think that's just too much to put on any of us um so so our hope has to come from something something else something greater than than just sort of new knowledge new action from from our own brothers and sisters 
Yeah. I remember uh, uh, Miriam McKibben Dana, who wrote a book called I think, a handbook, a handbook for hope. I think she was talking about there's, there's a columnist that she likes to, to read uh, his interpretation of whatever sort of disastrous uh, events are in the news because he always offers a hopeful vision mm. of what's happening. And one of her friends said, "Well, what's his track record? I mean, is does he is he usually right? Is it turn? You know, is it, does he is he usually proven right in this hopeful interpretation?" And and she says, "You know, it it that's not the question mm. because it's a it is an orientation. Hope is an orientation. It doesn't say if you if your predictions if your positive predictions are correct, therefore your hope is justified, but rather." I'm I'm oriented towards something that ultimately is going to be true, uh, and is only I mean you know we're we're still on the not yet. It's not <laughs> it's, that's right, or we're still on the now. I guess I should say, and the, the not yet is coming. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you say that um, hope is the opposite of naivete. Mm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think that's some of what I was just trying to touch on a little bit that it's um, w- that that hope is really based in in hard situations right uh we we need hope when think we need we know we need hope most when things are bleakest yeah. so that's actually the conditions for hope yeah. so when we're hoping is is in those situations where we're real enough and honest enough to say this is horrific this is not the yeah. way things are meant to be and yeah. i think that's what you see in walker's poem right it, it has a real honesty and a real historical awareness yeah. of what her people have gone through and i think that's how we know we're we're getting close to true hope because there's a there's an honesty there's a historical awareness there there's a real sense uh, of understanding uh things are not as they ought to be therefore we we must look beyond ourselves outside of ourselves for any semblance of hope yeah um, how do dirges and the blues and slave sto- slave songs relate to the kind of thick hope that you've been talking about? Yeah, I think it loops right into to what you what we just mentioned about the sort of uh, that the nature of hope um, mm-hmm. containing real honesty. Um, and I, and I think it's actually the truthfulness of our experience. If we can reckon with that, we become primed to move closer to hope. Mm. So I find that Walker's poem shows us that hope has a sort of historical dynamic, the sort of dynamic of honesty. And it also has this sort of, um, eschatological dynamic, the sort of what we talked about earlier as a sort of apocalyptic theme that we can pick up on the last stanza because we, you know, read Fleming Rutledge and and these different sort of thinkers. I think hope has both of those dynamics, this sort of honesty about what we're in, and then this gaze that goes further. So, so that's where I think the slave songs and the dirges come in. Um, It's through that ability to vocalize the truth of our, our real experience. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right, um, let's talk about. I, I love the way you 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 talk about the last stanza or two. I guess it's the next last stanza when when uh, Margaret Walker starts talking about all the Adams and Eves, right? N- not she's expanding the idea of of who are my people. We, she's still talking about black folks, but she's ex- but there's also an expansion beyond you know that that my people are not just my you know community you know defined in a in a narrow way. Um, you talk to me about that, this idea of expanding our notion of what my people, who my people are. 
I think if we look at this part of the poem in a theological reading, as I kind of proposed through my chapter and through the book, I think we're 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 really helped and we're guided really well by some of what the poem is doing here. Because this is an unexpected term, right? Th- throughout the poem, we've been conditioned almost rhythmically to expect another yeah. continuation of for my people, for my people. Mm-hmm. And then here we get all of a sudden, okay, for my people who are actually trying to fashion a world that will hold all the people, all the faces, mm-hmm. all the Adams and Eves. So what Walker is showing us is, is, is some of what we hear from, you know, from Dr. King and the beloved community that we are tied together in this mutual garment of destiny. Um, and this is drills so deep and so close to, to the truth at the heart of the Christian story is that we are made in the image of God and we do belong to God and we do belong to one another. And what we need to begin to understand is that we all have this sense in which we can say my people, but at the same time, that's connected to which we are called to say all people. Mm-hmm. And that dynamic is extremely important. Um, it, it's a reminder of what we're given um, also by grace through through Christ and through our salvation. Uh, think of 1 Peter 2, where we're told, um, God says to those who were not my people, you are now my people, mm-hmm. right? So now our idea of who our people is, is expanded by the knowledge that um, the God, the cre- the good creator, the triune creator has actually made all of us in his image. So in that sense, we are all his people. And then in another sense, our idea of who our people is, is no longer tied around ethnic lines exclusively, but rather now tied around uh, the lines of Christ's very body, right? This, mm-hmm. this all people, this my people is now expanded through the borders of, of our redemption and the body of our savior. So we get these layers of who our people are redefined by the truth of God, our creator, and also the truth of God, our redeemer, which now begins to change how we hope. We don't just hope for my people, but for all people mm. changes how we serve, how we love, how we care, not just for my people, my place, but for all people in all places. And those are those are gifts and bonds of hope and community that that God gives to us. And I think this poem is really pointing and showing the way that's both inspirational and also instructive. Yeah, well, I really appreciate your um your devoting so much time, you know a whole chapter to this poem because it's such a beautiful poem. i've I've uh, uh, loved it for a long time, and I really appreciated your um your thank you deepening it for me. All right, let me ask you one last question that is my typical last question, and that is, who are the writers who make you want to write? Oh, man. So, I, in a real sense, everybody that I cover in this book, but I'll, yeah. I'll certainly highlight Ralph Ellison as one. He he really taught himself to write, uh, and he worked mm-hmm. really hard. He, he sort of copied Richard Wright to the point that Richard Wright said, stop copying my stories. <laughs> like, you know, you got to figure out your own stuff. Um, yeah. But I really admire that he he worked extremely hard, he studied the great Russian novelist, studied the Bible, studied, um, and he really wanted to prove himself. Uh, so, so Ellison, um, Ta-Nehisi Coates uh, as well, I really enjoy his memoir about his growing up with his brothers and his dad uh, called The Beautiful Struggle. I found that just extremely powerful. Um, so I would offer those two. I'd also say Toni Morrison. Um, th- those would be kind of the three that I think of. And I, uh, I, I say, you know, one, one day, maybe one day I could kind of kind of do something like that. So those are kind of my, my top three. You know, Invisible Man is one of those novels that I always think I'm going to get around to, and I've never read. But but after reading your book, I'm going to go read Invisible Man. That's the next thing on my list. 
And if you if you dabble in audible book, I think Lawrence Fishburne recorded the recent um, the recent uh, audio book of Invisible okay. Man. It is it is long. It, it, it may. I mean, in, in some sections, hearing that read aloud would be just extremely powerful. So I so I do offer okay. that to you as you right. as you take your Ellison journey. OK, great. Thanks. Thanks so much, uh, Claude Acho. This has been great. Yeah, absolute pl- pleasure. Uh, thank you, Jonathan. Appreciate you. This podcast is brought to you by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. And all our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com. And to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. 